0: And with that, please have your Bibles in hand. We are going to be opening God's word together and uh, returning to the Sermon on the Mount. We are making our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the greatest sermon in the history of the world, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, picking up where we left off last week. Now, I'm kind of curious, uh, how many of you uh, were taught a prayer, maybe by your parents, maybe by a Sunday school teacher at a very young age, a prayer that you memorized when you were just a little bitty thing? I bet a lot of you learned a prayer when you were pretty young. Maybe it was this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, many of us memorize that prayer, but when you think about it, this is a pretty morbid prayer, isn't it? <laughs> pretty depressing. A lot of kids probably slept with one eye open. Ah, I'm going to die before I wake up. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. But many of us learned this prayer. Or maybe you learned this prayer before mealtime when you were a little tight. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. How many of you learned that prayer? For some kids, evidently, this 10-second prayer was a little bit too long. They were hungry, so they shortened the prayer and came up with this one. uh, Rub-a-dub-dub, thank God for the grub, yay God. (laughs) Not exactly the most reverent prayer, but some of us prayed that when we were little guys. Well, I want you to think about something. Of all these prayers that we learned when we were very young, I came across this quote from Dr. Robert Cook in my studies this last week that really I thought was a pretty insightful little quote. He says this, all of us have one routine prayer in our system and once we get rid of it, then we can really start to pray. Wow, that I thought was really thought provoking. That's a pretty insightful thing to say. When we were three years old, memorizing a simple prayer was a great way to learn how to pray, but if you're 15 years old or 25 years old or 75 years old, those rote routine simple prayers, you know what? They probably should go by the wayside. We need to take those prayers a a bit deeper. Uh, I think I would agree with what Dr. Cook says. If we're still just praying these routine repetitive prayers, then we really haven't started to pray. This morning, our Lord is going to teach us the right way and the wrong way to pray. I'm calling today's message, Pray Like Jesus. We're in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Hopefully you have your Bible with you and can follow along. Uh, As always, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see for yourself what God's word says right there in your own copy of God's word. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, this is what we read. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need even before you ask him. Do not be like them. Your father knows your need before you ask him. Well, may God bless us as we read, study, and apply his word to our lives today. Last Sunday, I mentioned to you that here in the first half of Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus addresses three very important religious acts that every follower of Christ should practice. Number one, giving to the poor. Number two, prayer. And number three, fasting. These were three religious acts that every Pharisee and teacher of the law in Jesus' day practiced on a regular Basis, But remember how Jesus started this chapter, chapter six, verse one, he said, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. Here in verse one, Jesus begins to reveal that God expects us to give to the poor. He expects us to pray and to fast, and he promises to reward us For these acts of righteousness, if we do them in the right way. I think it's safe to say that every Jewish religious leader did all of these acts regularly. They gave to the poor, they prayed, and they fasted. Many Pharisees fasted two times every single week. But there was a big problem. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had a bad habit of doing all three of these acts of righteousness in a very showy, flashy way to draw attention to themselves. And Jesus throws up the flag and says, no, 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 no. This is not what I want you to do. This is not what God had in mind when he gave you these three religious acts to live out. So the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, it was all about themselves. They wanted to draw attention to themselves as they gave to the poor, as they prayed and as they fasted. In the first four verses of chapter 6, we saw last week that Jesus addressed giving to the poor and Jesus explained the wrong way and the right way to give. Jesus explained in verses one and two that the wrong way to give was to give like the Pharisees. Uh, they literally would do, 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 blow trumpets there on the street corners. They would say they were doing it just to get the word out to the poor that a giveaway is about to begin. But Jesus said, I know what's going on inside your hearts. No. No. That's not why you're blowing those trumpets. You're not doing it to help the poor. You're doing it to help yourselves. It's to make yourself the center of attention. So everybody in town sees this Pharisee is generous and he is giving to those poor, poor, poverty stricken people in town. And so Jesus says, no, that's not how you should give. You shouldn't give because you want to draw attention to yourself. You should give out of a true concern for the poor. You should give out of a concern for their well-being, not a a concern for your own image. So in verse 2, Jesus called them hypocrites. Remember that in ancient Greece, a hypocrite was an actor who wore a mask in a play. He was a man who pretended to be something that he wasn't. And so Jesus takes this word that was used in the, the context of dramas and plays and applies that to the Pharisees. He chooses this word to describe them because he said, you know what? You guys are play actors. You guys are pretending. You're mask wearers. You pretend to be merciful and compassionate on the outside, but in actuality, you're self-absorbed and indifferent on the inside. You portray yourself as having soft hearts, but, you know, I see right through that facade on the outside. You actually have some rotten things going on in your hearts. You've got these hard hearts. You've got these hypocritical thoughts in your head and in your heart. And so Jesus points to those hypocrites and says, that is the wrong way for my followers to give. Jesus explained the right way to give in verses three and four. In verse three, Jesus said that when you give, you shouldn't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, when you have the choice to do a good deed, either publicly or privately, Jesus says, do it privately. If you have the option to do it privately, do it privately. Don't blow the trumpets. Don't send up the signal flares or the fireworks to let people know, hey, look at me. I'm giving to a poor person right now. I'm doing something good. Don't do that. Whenever you have the option, give privately. And make sure, he said, that your motive is to truly help people in need, not to help yourself. So it boils down to this. Give privately and give out of a sincere love for people. In other words, give like God. That's the right way to give. And with that in mind, Jesus turns to his second example of an act of righteousness in verse 5. He devotes much more time to this second example than he does to either the first or the third examples. Jesus spent just four verses tackling that first example on giving to the poor. Uh, Later on, after dealing with prayer, he's going to tackle that third example of fasting. Jesus will spend only three verses on that in verses 16 through 18. But Jesus will spend a whopping 11 verses on this second example, the example of prayer. And because prayer is so important, Jesus spends more time addressing it. Of all the acts of righteousness, Jesus believed that prayer was one of the most important. And he also saw that prayer was being misunderstood and abused by many who claimed to follow God. And so Jesus spends a little bit more time on this, and so will we. I'm just going to tackle the first four verses of this example on prayer uh, today. We'll look at verses 5 through 8. And then after Easter, Lord willing, we'll come back and look at the Lord's prayer uh, that Jesus gives us in those following verses, uh, verses 9 through 15. And so today we're looking at those four verses, verses 5 through 8. We're going to look at the wrong and the right ways to pray. So let's take a closer look at these four important verses. In verses 5 and 7, Jesus teaches us the wrong way to give. Okay, Verses 5 and 7. Now, the even verses, verses 6 and 8, Jesus teaches us the right way to pray. And so the way these four verses work, he says, wrong way, right way, wrong way, right way. So four verses, wrong way, right way, wrong way, right way. Okay? That's almost a tongue twister if you say it two times fast. So that's what Jesus does here. Let's take a closer look at verse 5 where Jesus begins telling us the wrong way to pray. Well, after learning last week that the Pharisees actually would stand on street corners blowing trumpets when they were about to give to the poor, it shouldn't surprise you to learn that these same Pharisees would actually stand on a street corner with all those people in public around. They would lift their hands and pray loudly to God. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? That's what they did in his day. They did it in the synagogues. And they did it on the street corners. Now, why on earth would they do that? Well, it wasn't an uncommon prayer position, a common Jewish prayer position in Jesus's day, especially in private prayer or when you were praying with others in the synagogue would be to stand and lift your hands and pray to God. But context is everything, isn't it? God didn't have in mind for them to go out on the street corner at rush hour uh, there, you know, on. Uh, fifth and Broadway or whatever. And, and they're in this busiest district of town and be lifting up their hands, standing on the street corner and yelling out these praises to God where everybody could see them and hear them and say, wow, what a wonderful prayer warrior you are. Jesus says, no, 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 no. That is not what I am calling you to do. When I call you to prayer, to pray, Jesus says, plainly, I tell you the truth. If you pray like that, If you pray like a Pharisee, just understand they have their reward in full. In other words, the attaboys that flashy prayers get from people are all the reward they'll ever get. They won't receive any reward from God. Now, like we did last Sunday, let me give you a couple different translations. One translation, other than the NIV we just read, and then one paraphrase. I love how the New Living Translation translates this first verse, verse 5. It says, when you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. Now catch this paraphrase of verse 5 from the message. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. (laughs) The message said a similar thing with that first example on giving to the poor. It says, don't make that a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for 15 minutes of fame. Do you think God sits in a box seat? (laughs) That's a clever way to paraphrase what Jesus is saying there. So Jesus asks some important questions, doesn't he? What is the wrong way to pray? Well, I think it boils down to this. The wrong way to pray is to pray in a way that makes you the center of attention. That's the wrong way to pray. If you're praying to make you the center of attention, that is wrong. Jesus says, that's not how I want you to pray. And in verse 6, Jesus explains the right way to pray. Once again, I'll give you what the New Living Translation says about this next verse, verse 6, and then the paraphrase in the message. New Living Translation first. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. That's pretty good, isn't it? Now the paraphrase from the message of verse 6. Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. That's pretty well said. So what is the right way to pray? I think it boils down to this. The right way to pray is to pray discreetly and privately, motivated by a heartfelt desire to spend quality time with your Father in heaven. In other words, pray like Jesus. Would you say that with me? Pray like Jesus. If you're there in the room with someone else, tell them, pray like Jesus. Sometimes we forget that when Jesus spoke of God as our father, he was actually sharing something that was quite revolutionary. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees and teachers of the law and the rabbis, they would commonly refer to our creator as God, as Lord. They would call him creator at times, but they didn't hardly ever refer to him as father. It just didn't for whatever reason, seem right to them. And so Jesus comes onto the scene and during his ministry, time and time and time again, he keeps referring to God as our Father, my Father, your Father. And it was really a a revolutionary thing that Jesus does here. So Jesus calls God Father over and over again to emphasize the reality that God desires a personal relationship with each and every one of us. He really does. He's not cold and distant. He is a very personal God. He is loving and is closer to us than we could even be to each other. And this term father communicates that so beautifully. God is so close to us and he wants to draw even closer. Jesus sets an example for us of how to talk to our father in heaven. Because throughout his ministry, he demonstrated he would talk to God throughout the day, every day. Now, Jesus is is not just saying that all of our prayers should be private when he tells us here to go to our prayer closet, to go to an inner room and and, and pray to him just one-on-one. He's not saying to scrap all public prayers, not at all. God wants us and Jesus wants us to pray with other Christians at church. He wants us to pray with others uh, when they're sick. And, and uh, in James, it says to call the elders to go to someone's sickbed and pray over them together. He calls us to intercede in prayer for each other. He calls us to pray for individuals when they want to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And when someone at City Hall contacts me and asks me to come and, and pray an invocation at the start of the, the city council meeting, you better believe I go and pray if I can possibly Make it. I want to be there and pray, even though possibly half the people in the room don't even claim Christ as Savior. Absolutely, he wants us to pray publicly. But make no mistake about it. Jesus prayed in public, but the lifeblood of his prayer life was his private prayer. His private time with God, just one-on-one, that was the lifeblood of his prayer life. I want you to listen to what we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. The next couple verses make it clear his disciples wake up, and they're looking around. Where'd Jesus go? Well, Jesus was long gone. Long before they woke up, while they were still sawing logs, he goes out to a solitary place to spend alone time praying to God. What about Luke 5, verse 16? It says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. If you really want to get to know the prayer life of Jesus, read through the gospel of Luke. Luke, more than any of the other three gospel writers, shines the spotlight on Jesus' prayer life. And you go through the book of Luke, which I've done several times, identifying when it was that Jesus prayed. I was blown away at the pivotal times in Jesus' life When we find him praying alone, remember Jesus prayed for 40 days and 40 nights before he began his public ministry. He was out there in the wilderness, just him and God. The devil came a few times to tempt him, but it was just Jesus and God for 40 days and 40 nights. He prayed himself up, spent 40 days with God alone time before he started his ministry. Do you remember that before Jesus chose the 12 disciples, he prayed all night long. He stayed up all night and prayed all night long before he chose the 12 disciples. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and appeared in glorified form with Elijah and with Moses, remember what Jesus did? He prayed right before that transfiguration moment. He was praying on the mountain. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was arrested, he was praying. He prayed with his disciples, but he also prayed by himself. When Jesus was on the cross, you remember the first thing he said when he was hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. The first thing he said from the cross was a prayer. At these pivotal times in Jesus's ministry, he was praying, spending that one-on-one alone time with God. I think Jesus is sure trying to tell us something. His private prayer life was the lifeblood of his public ministry. He prayed discreetly and privately, and he was motivated by a heartfelt desire to spend quality time with his father in heaven. There's no doubt about it. Quite often, Jesus prayed publicly in the presence of other people. On a few occasions, he even prayed in the presence of thousands of people. I'm thinking of when he fed the 5,000, he prayed before he perform the miracle. And then a little bit later, he prayed before he uh, fed the 4,000 people. So at times he prayed in front of others. And at times he prayed in front of thousands of others, but his public prayers never drew attention to himself. They drew attention to his father in heaven. And Jesus's public prayers weren't the lifeblood of his prayer life. His private prayers were, and it should be the exact same thing with you and me. Our private prayers should be the lifeblood of our public prayers. I like how William Barclay says it and pay attention to these words because I think they're, they're pretty hard hitting and so true. Barclay writes, we must pray in secret before we pray in public. It is not wrong to pray in public in the assembly. We find evidence of that in 1st Timothy 2 1. Or even when blessing food, John 6 verse 11. Or seeking God's help, John 11 verses 41 and 42. But it is wrong to pray in public if we are not in the habit of praying in private. Observers may think that we are practicing prayer when we are not. And this is hypocrisy. So please, if I ever ask you to pray publicly, you know, be honest enough to pull me aside and say, you know, pastor, I'm not praying at all privately. I probably need to take a pass on this one. Our praying privately is the lifeblood that leads to us being able to effectively pray publicly. And if we're not praying privately, it is rather hypocritical to start praying with others publicly, with them assuming that that is just springing forth from our private prayer life, which in that case doesn't even exist if we're not praying privately. It's an important food for thought from William Barclay there. Well, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus continues his explanation of the wrong and the right ways to pray. Verse 7, we looked at it a few minutes ago in the NIV. Let me share with you how the New Living Translation translates verse 7. It says this, when you pray, don't babble on as the Gentiles do, on and on. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again and again I've read that in Jesus's day pagan worshipers uh, had some strange ways of praying. Uh pagan worshipers oftentimes in these other religions in Jesus's day would literally stand and and just break into these unintelligible words and phrases. This they were poppycock words. It just didn't even make sense. And they would just rattle on and on and on and then they would repeat it over and over and over like a mantra. And so this was very common. You might equate it to our modern day word, abracadabra. Okay, abracadabra, look it up in the dictionary. What does it mean? It really doesn't mean anything. It, it's a nonsensical word. It's it's nonsense that's uh, spoken by uh, rookie magicians to make people think that they actually are know what they're doing, and they don't. It's just you know a word that rookies use. You will not go and uh, to Las Vegas and see David Copperfield uh, use the word abracadabra. That guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> it's a word that pretenders use when they want people to think that they're a legit magician. And it was kind of like that with prayer. In Jesus' day, some pagan worshipers would just rattle on and on and on, and the Jewish worshipers at times picked up on that, and some of them began rattling on and on and on. Yeah, they were praying to God, kind of, but it was really nonsensical. It didn't really make any sense. So Jesus says many hypocrites' prayers are like those pagan prayers. Their prayers are full of words, and some of their words sound really impressive, but their prayers are meaningless because they're not really talking to God. They claim to be talking to God, but they're actually just putting on a a dog and pony show for people. They're just babbling, is what Jesus says here. Do you know what one of the world's worst babbling prayers is? One of the world's worst babbling prayers. It's a prayer. I'll give you a hint. It's a prayer that is prayed every single day by hundreds of millions of people around the world who claim to be Christians. It's the prayer that goes like this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Every single day, tens of millions of people who claim to be Christians pray this prayer over and over again. Have you ever had the misfortune of attending a Catholic funeral? When you go to a Catholic funeral and they pray the full rosary, which is commonplace at a Catholic funeral, the audience, those that are Catholic, will pray this Hail Mary prayer as part of the rosary 53 times. They pray it 53 times. They pray it over and over and over and over again. And Jesus says, no, for starters, it's not even a real prayer. Because praying to Mary is not prayer at all. We as non-Catholics realize this. Praying to Mary is no more effective than praying to the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter, or Ronald McDonald for that matter. It would be just as effective for me to pray to Ronald McDonald as it would be for me to pray to Mary. She is not God, and so you can't pray to the woman. It's meaningless. Some of those words sound good because the first half of that Hail Mary prayer is pulled out of the King James translation from Luke when that Mary, when that angel announces to Mary that she is going to give birth to the Christ child. And so it parts of it ring true with Scripture and, and parts of it has some truth in it, but she's not the mother of God. And so, so many well-meaning Catholics babble on and on and on this nonsensical prayer that is absolutely meaningless. And it's sad, isn't it? It's sad. Their eyes haven't been opened to the truth that it's but by Jesus Christ, not by Mary that salvation comes. It's but by Jesus Christ, not Mary, that we gain access to God the Father. And so they babble on and on. What's my point? My point is I'm pointing out to a predominantly Protestant audience that does not ever pray this prayer, this Hail Mary prayer. I'm giving you an extreme example. And now I want us to look at examples that hit a little closer to home. Now, you probably don't babble on and on this Hail Mary prayer. If you do, I hope you'll stop because it's pointless. It's a waste of time. But do you pray prayers that have some of the same mistakes in them that the Hail Mary prayer does? Uh, Do you pray pray prayers like this uh, before lunch on Sunday? Uh, Dear God, uh, bless this food that we are about to receive to the nourishment of our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. And then the next day, the same prayer. Monday before lunch, dear God, thank you for this day. Uh, Help us to get a good night's sleep. And oh, let's go back to that first prayer. Uh, Do you pray on that next day? Uh, Dear God, bless this food that we are about to receive uh, to the nourishment of our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. And then the following day, the exact same prayer. Uh, Dear God, uh, bless this food that we are about to receive to the nourishment of our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Then on Wednesday, then on Thursday, then on Friday, on Saturday, and the next week, the exact same prayer. Are you rattling off the same exact prayer before you eat every single day? If so... We're making some of the same mistakes that the Catholics are making, repeating the same tired old prayer every single day. How about a prayer before you go to bed? Does it sound something like this? Dear God, thank you for this day. Help us to get a good night's sleep and wake up wake us up refreshed in the morning. Forgive us for our sins in Jesus name. Amen. And then the next day before you go to bed, dear God, thank you for this day. Help us to get a good night's sleep and wake us up refreshed in the morning. Forgive us for our sins. And then the day after that, dear God, thank you for this day. Help us to have a good night's sleep and wake up refreshed in the morning. Forgive us for our sins in Jesus name. Amen. And if I said this another hundred times, you would probably be ready to cut off this broadcast. Why? Because it's a tired old prayer and you're tired of hearing it. So why on earth do we pray the same tired old prayers to God every day? Why would he be any more interested in hearing tired old prayers than you are? You know, imagine husbands, imagine if you said the exact same boring old lines to your wife every single day and nothing more. How was your day today, honey? That's great. That's nice. I love you. Good night. How was your day today? That's great. That's good. I love you. Good night. How was your day today, honey? That's great. That's good. I love you. Good night. Can you imagine how wonderful your marriage would be? If you said those exact same words every single day to your wife, your marriage would be in trouble, wouldn't it? What about ladies? If you said to your kids every day, how was school today? Oh, that's nice. Go to bed. How was school today? Oh, that's nice. Go to bed. How was school today? Oh, that's nice. Go to bed. Your kids wouldn't really believe that you genuinely care about how their day went or that you love them, would they? We could never get away with saying the same tired old lines to anyone we're in a meaningful relationship with. You might be able to say the same tired old line to that lady that checks out your groceries at Walmart, but you can't get away with that with anyone you're in a deep relationship with, and you certainly can't get away with it with God. Jesus says, make sure you're not giving God the same tired old prayer day after day after day after day. Well, at times in our lives, all of us have heard Christians stand up in church and pray beautiful, passionate, eloquent prayers. And we've sat back and said, wow, I wish I could pray like that. Ever thought that? Man, I remember at a young age, I memorized the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. I think I was about 18 at the time. I love that prayer, O God, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we're born to eternal life. And I've looked at those words and I've recited those words and i thought, Wow, if I could only write a prayer like that. And you know what? Honestly, Jesus Christ looks at me and says, Dane, I don't want you to pray a prayer like that. That's St. Francis's prayer. If it serves as a guide for you to pray a little bit more creatively, then that's fine and good. But that's his prayer. I don't want you to pray the exact same prayer he did because you're not the exact same person. Jesus wants us to be honest and sincere in our walk with him. Jesus Christ wants us to pray in unique ways because we are unique people. I, I, I jotted this down in my notes. I, I feel like Jesus turns to us and says, I don't want you to pray like that person you heard in church that prayed so eloquently and you wanted to be able to pray just like they did. I feel like Jesus is saying, uh, you don't want to pray like that. I don't want you to pray like that. Some of those prayers you've heard were nothing but babbling to me. Eloquent for sure, but Meaningless. Because they were spoken to impress people, uh, not to connect with me. And other prayers you've heard where you've sat back and said, Wow, that was amazing. I wish I could pray like that. Some of those prayers that Christians have prayed have been sincere. They have been heartfelt and have glorified God. But I don't want you to parrot those prayers either. Because you are a unique child of mine. Our relationship is special. So your prayers to your father in heaven should be special. They shouldn't sound like everyone else's prayers. I don't want you to worry about how you look. I don't want you to worry about using all the right words. You say, I don't pray very well. I stumble over my words. I don't care. I just want you to speak to me. Just talk with God like you're talking to your daddy who loves you more than anything else in the world. Do you understand that? God does not want you to pray like me. God does not want you to pray like anyone else. He uniquely knits you together in your mother's womb. And your words are going to be a little different than mine in prayer. And that's a good thing. The things you think to pray about may be a bit different than the things I think to pray pray about. That's okay. The way you talk to God will be a bit different. And the place you talk to God may be a bit different. That's okay. Jesus says, you come to me just as you are. And let's have a conversation with the Father. Notice what Jesus says in verse 8. Do not be like them, those pagans, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Notice how personal Jesus makes prayer here. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. What is the takeaway from this statement? I believe the takeaway is this. God is waiting for you in your secret place. He knows what you need and he is waiting for you to bring that need to him. He knows what's on your mind and heart and he's ready for you to bring what's on your mind and heart to him. He wants you to open up to him. He knows it already, but he wants you to open up to him freely. He wants to hear you praise him for what he has uniquely been in your life. He wants you to thank Him for the unique things He's done in your life. And He wants to share His heart and thoughts with you as well. God is waiting for you in your secret place. For some of you, it may be in your favorite chair in your family room. That's one of my secret places with God. My other, you know what? I'm not going to tell you my other one <laughs> between me and God. But we all have our secret place. For you, maybe it is at your favorite chair in your family room. Maybe it's at a desk in your bedroom with the door closed. Maybe it's on your back patio in a rocker chair. I don't know. It may be inside. It may be outside. But let me ask you, where is your secret place where you go to spend one-on-one time with God? God says, I want to meet with you regularly. I want to meet with you daily. Your time with God is that secret in that secret place will be the lifeblood of your faith and service to Christ. It's time for you to get back to spending quality time with God every day, one-on-one, just the two of you. God is waiting for you in your secret place. Will you go and meet with Him this week? And may I give you this challenge on this holy week. When we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry and we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem and preaching his final sermons and eventually being betrayed by Judas Iscariot, having that last supper with his disciples, sweating like drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because of the stress that was upon him and being arrested and beaten and hung on a cross and eventually raising from the dead three days later. As we celebrate this Holy Week, will you meet with God in your secret place every single day this week? What better week to do it than this week? Let me give you this seven-day challenge. Every day this week, beginning today, meet in that secret place with God. Open up to him, speak to him, and let him speak to you right from his word. Meet with him in that secret place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus, for raising the bar yet again. And Lord, we may not be lifting up Hail Mary rosary prayers. But Lord, some of our prayers are just as tired and meaningless. Forgive us. Forgive us for rushing through a quick prayer because we're hungry and we want to eat. Forgive us for rushing through a quick prayer before bed because we're tired and we want to go to sleep. I pray, Lord, that we would give you time each day this week. That we would meet with you in our secret place. And if for anyone, anyone who's hearing my voice, oh God, that doesn't have a secret place, would you help reveal that to them even today? A place where they can get away from the distractions, get away from the noise and just meet with you. And I thank you, God, that you're there already, ready to meet with us. May we come and meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I like this message a lot because I love times with God. And uh, as we talked about last week, a lot of what I do is in front of people because of the nature of my job as a pastor. But what I said for you holds true for me as well. If my prayers in front of you are not fed by the lifeblood of my private prayers, when I'm alone with God, there's a real, real problem in my ministry. If the acts of service that I do are only when people are watching, there's a real, real problem with my service. It's critical for me and it's critical for you to maintain that lifeblood of our faith and our service and our prayer and our fasting and everything else we do as Christians. It's critical to maintain that lifeblood by making sure we're spending quality time with God one-on-one every single day. Please begin doing that this Holy Week as we celebrate all that Jesus did for us. And if you are here today and you've never accepted Christ as Savior, I just want to give you this chance to do that. Reach out to one of our prayer and decision counselors right now. Their names and numbers are there on the bottom of the screen. You can call or text them, whichever you prefer. But accepting Christ is not complicated. It's challenging following Christ, but it's not complicated. Jesus wants you to A, admit that you are a sinner. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And C, Choose to follow him as your Savior and Lord beginning today. If you're ready to put him on the driver's seat of your life and follow him from this point forward, he's ready for you. Please reach out to one of our prayer counselors. They'd love to talk to you about starting that walk with Jesus Christ. And we'd love to talk with you about setting up a time when you can be baptized in obedience to Christ's command with that, it's time to take communion for those of you who are baptized believers and followers of Christ. Hopefully you have your bread and juice ready. It's a wonderful thing to be able to remember what Jesus did and at the same time to proclaim not only what he's doing in my life today, but proclaim what he's going to do someday when he comes back to set up his kingdom on earth and right all the wrongs and have us in a a place that is true paradise. It's going to be awesome. When Jesus comes back and so communion looks back, it looks to the present and looks to the future. So let's take together, search your hearts, make sure you're not taking in an unworthy manner. Make sure that you're confessing any sin that you know about to God, asking Christ to forgive you. And if you are, I invite you to take with me the bread. Jesus's body was broken for us. He said, take of the bread, do it in remembrance of me. And similarly, he took that juice, that wine, and he said, this represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Please forgive us. Thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins 2,000 years ago on Good Friday. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring all of that excruciating pain for us. And thank you for conquering death on Easter And thank you, Lord Jesus, for ascending to the Father's right hand. Thank you for your promise that you'll come back one day to take us to be with you and then set up your kingdom here on earth. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. We can't wait. But in the meantime, I pray that you would find us faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to conclude our service with one final song of praise. As you continue with that spirit of prayer and meditation, I encourage you to lift up your voices in praise with us. God bless you. Hope to see you on Good Friday in just five days and hope to see you next Sunday for Resurrection Sunday. God bless you.